This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The mere fact that this program exists is sort of a sign of weakness rather than strength, right? This program is meant to address long-term structural economic weaknesses. You know, they live in fear of laying off tens of thousands of steel workers and cement workers because they know that that would be a threat to regime stability. So rather than, you know, reforming inefficient state-owned enterprises or privatizing them. They're basically subsidizing them by just, you know, creating a, a larger customer base. Brad Parks is the executive director of Aid Data, a research institute at the College of William & Mary. Before joining Aid Data, Brad helped establish the U.S. government's Millennium Challenge Corporation, a U.S. foreign aid agency. Brad joins us today to talk about his new book, Banking on Beijing, The Aims and Impacts of China's Overseas Development Program. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Brad, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Michael. So, Brad, you have a new book published earlier this year called Banking on Beijing, The Aims and Impacts 
of China's Overseas Development Program. So congratulations on the book. I want to start, Brad, by noting that you're not the only author, and I wanted to give you a chance to say a few words about your colleagues who you're representing here today as well as yourself. Yeah, so this book is the fruit of a 10-year project with a group of economists and political scientists in Germany and in Hong Kong and here in the U.S. And uh, that's Axel Dreher and Andreas Fuchs in Germany, Austin Strange in Hong Kong, and then Mike Tierney and myself were both from William & Mary. That's great. So Brad, what is aid data and what is its link to the book? So Aid Data is a research lab at William & Mary that collects very detailed information and comprehensive information about China's overseas grant giving and lending activities. And we make all these data publicly available for use by policymakers and journalists and researchers. And so those data that the research lab generates and publishes, that's the primary data source that's used for the analysis in the book. Brad, just so we're all on the same sheet of music here and our listeners understand what we're talking about, can you define development finance? What is it composed of? Development finance is really has two components. There's foreign aid component, and then there's a foreign lending component. So um, I'll just use the, the shorthand terms aid and debt. So the lion's share of China's overseas development finance is provided in the form of credit or debt, not in the form of aid. I think one of the things that, Brad, struck me right off the bat was the rapid transformation, really in only a generation, from China being a net recipient of development finance to being a dominant provider of it. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. You know, it was really in the late 1990s, right around the turn of the century, that China began to sort of turn outward and think about scaling up its overseas grant giving and lending activities. And that was um, that strategy called the going out strategy was really born from challenge that they faced, which was recurring trade surpluses had led to a kind of stockpiling of uh, U.S. dollars. And so that really gave them an incentive. They, for a long time, were parking those surplus U.S. dollars in U.S. treasuries. And then when the U.S. treasuries started to deliver a less favorable rate of return than they were hoping for, then they started to pull those dollars out, give them to their banks, and ask their banks to denominate their loans in U.S. dollars to get them a more favorable rate of return. And so that's really one of the key drivers that led to the, the rapid expansion of this overseas lending and grant giving program. So Brad, let's actually size this. So how much does China spend on overseas development finance today? And how does that compare to the United States? And when you break down aid and debt, what does that look like both in China and the United States. So kind of put that all into context for us. Yeah, so the overall scale of the program is just under a trillion dollars, $843 billion by last count. That money is spread across 165 countries and across 
13,400 projects. So in a typical year, Beijing is spending about $85 billion on various overseas projects. So that means they're outspending Washington on a more than two to one basis. They're outspending Brussels on a more than four to one basis, and they're outspending London on a more than eight to one basis. So in the U.S., you know, typically we'll spend about $37 billion a year on overseas projects, and China spends about $85 billion each year on overseas projects. And then that breakdown, right, for Beijing on aid to debt and compare that with the U.S. The vast majority of China's overseas spending is financed via debt, more than 90%. And so the, the scale of its foreign aid program is quite modest. It spends roughly about $5 billion a year on aid projects, which kind of puts it on par with like a northern European donor like Sweden. But when it comes to lending, China is now the world's largest official lender, larger than the World Bank, the IMF, and all Western creditors combined. Now, the interesting thing is if you kind of drill down on U.S. spending, we kind of do the, the exact opposite. So we've ratcheted down our overseas lending levels to exceptionally low levels and replaced that with grants nearly 100%, more than 95% of our spending is now provided via grants to the developing world. And Brad, when we think about China's objectives, right, in providing development finance, what are those? And are there any differences between their objectives in providing debt loans, right, and providing aid? Yeah, there sure are. So when they are providing aid, their main audience, they're looking to cater to the interests of politicians. So Chinese aid projects really focus on things like supporting the construction of presidential palaces and parliamentary complexes and museums and theaters, even statues or convention centers, sort of amenities in major urban centers for governing elites. I mean, they will even use their Chinese aid program to provide personal vehicles and security details to senior politicians in the host countries. You know, so whereas U.S. foreign assistance and European foreign assistance is very much oriented towards ordinary citizens living in these countries, Chinese aid really focuses narrowly on decision makers. And that's because they are trying to purchase foreign policy concessions through their aid program. China's aid program has a very strong foreign policy orientation. So they use aid to implement the one China policy. If you recognize, if you diplomatically recognize Taiwan, you are automatically rendered ineligible for PRC aid. So Beijing also uses aid to buy votes in the UN General Assembly and in other international organizations. So, you know, we've modeled this statistically. And what we found is that you know, if you just look at one region of the world, Africa, you know, the average African country, if it was to increase the alignment of its voting with China in the UN General Assembly by just 10%, what we find is that that country could reasonably expect to increase the amount of Chinese aid that it receives by 86%, right? So aid is, Chinese aid is, you know, really used as 
a reward for foreign policy allegiance, kind of aligning your your foreign policy preferences with those of China. And, you know, those foreign policy considerations, what we find is they don't really matter very much when the PRC is, is lending. When they're financing projects with debt, you know, they're really looking to make money. So I like to talk about Chinese state-owned lenders as yield-maximizing surrogates of the government, meaning the government has sort of deputized their state-owned banks, and they've said, you know, go scour the globe for profitable projects. We've got all these surplus dollars. Go get us an attractive rate of return. And the sort of reference rate is what they would otherwise get if they parked their dollars in U.S. treasuries. So that that's why the single biggest increase, year-on-year increase in Chinese lending was between 2008 and 2009, because what happened, right? The global financial crisis hit. And when um, that happened, the Fed here in the U.S. did quantitative easing. And when they did quantitative easing, the rate of return that China started getting on all of its dollars in U.S. treasuries dropped to about one to two percent. So a lot of people sort of look at China's overseas loans and they kind of scratch their head and say, well, why are these loans so expensive? The you know average interest rate is north of 4%. Well, the reason it's north of 4% is because these banks have been asked to go find profitable projects that will deliver a better rate of return than what they would otherwise get in U.S. Treasuries. And on the debt side, what kind of projects are we talking about? What's typical? Yeah, I mean, what's typical is that they're going to finance projects that generate a revenue stream, right? So these are going to be oil refineries and steel mills and toll roads that the lenders expect will turn a profit and thus allow the borrower to repay its debts. So Brad, what's the impact on the recipients of both aid and data, right? And why so much controversy about this? I know that's a big question. Yeah, I mean, it's a, an important one because the, the conventional wisdom is that China bankrolls white elephants, these projects that are kind of politically expedient, but economically inefficient. And, you know, the conventional wisdom, what we found, it's not, it, it's not entirely right and it's not entirely wrong. So, you know, the average Chinese development project actually has a huge impact on economic growth in the short run. So, you know, a typical Chinese development project will usually cost about $125, $150 million. And if, let's say you're a country that before you ever accept one of those projects, you have a baseline economic growth rate of 2%. What we find is that you can reasonably expect to increase your growth rate by about a full percentage point. So like from 2% to 3% by just accepting one additional Chinese development project. I mean, if you think about what we would do in the US to boost our economic growth rate right. by 1%, right? We'd like give our, give our right arm to be able to do that. So um, this is kind of a, a very attractive proposition for a lot of, a lot of countries around the world. But boosting it for how long, I guess? This is the key thing. So we find that the effects are short-lived. So they really start to materialize within about two years of the project being approved. But then by year five, they vanish. And so 
We don't know definitively why they vanish, but I think it's fair to say that anytime you do a mega infrastructure project, you start hiring lots of people and bringing construction workers to a to a site, you know, that is going to kind of give the economy a bit of a sugar high. And the, mm-hmm. the question of whether those economic gains are durable and sort of produce long-lived economic development, that's still kind of an open question. We, we really don't know. The other challenge with these projects is that they can have a lot of negative spillovers, unintended effects on the environment, on governance, corruption, on debt sustainability, a whole range of other outcomes. Could you explain those downsides? You know, why do they emerge? What's what's their source? Yeah. Of course. So, I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that there is rot in the system that the PRC has created to fast track the approval and the implementation of these projects. So whereas U.S. or say the World Bank, um, when they ask for a project proposal or a loan application, they would go to a technocrat. And they would ask them to put put together the proposal. Beijing doesn't do that. They ask for proposals and loan applications from politicians. And those politicians are usually located in the office of the president or the prime minister. And Beijing really, I mean, they don't, they have really no compunction about green lighting projects that disproportionately benefit the core political supporters of the president or the prime minister. So that's why in the run-up to elections, we find that jurisdictions that are really important for the president or the prime minister in the country that they're lending to see really sharp increases in Chinese funding. You know, the other other source of rot in the system is that no-bid contracts are being issued to Chinese state-owned enterprises that already have a presence on the ground. And so they, they have the ability to quickly mobilize as soon as that loan application is approved. And so Chinese state-owned enterprises and then these politicians in the president's office or the prime minister's office who are actually responsible for submitting the loan applications, what, what they have done is they've, they've institutionalized a very simple but effective deception. And here, here's how it works. The Chinese state-owned enterprise and then the interlocutor in the president's office or the prime minister's office, they agree to inflate the cost of the underlying commercial contract that the loan's going to finance, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine you're going to build a road, and if that road was subjected to competitive bidding, it would cost $100 million. Well, they're not going to price it at $100 million. They're going to price it at $120 million. And then they're going to develop a side agreement to split the extra profit, quote unquote, extra profit from that contract, right? So those are illicit proceeds. And usually there's a cut that goes to someone in the president or the prime minister's office. And then the other portion of the illicit proceeds, you know, goes back to the Chinese company almost as like a super profit or a rent. And so that's why in a place like Sri Lanka, you know, you see an unusual number of overpriced infrastructure projects that are all located in the president's home district, right? So, and I think this also kind of highlights one of the most important vulnerabilities in the system that they've put in place to really rapidly implement these big ticket infrastructure projects. I mean, um, everything is sort of hunky-dory unless or until these illicit financial relationships are exposed 
And when they are exposed, and that's happening all around the globe now by journalists and civil society and parliamentarians, what happens is these these projects that kind of start off as reputational assets very quickly transform into reputational liabilities. So, you know, case in point is Sri Lanka, where public antipathy towards China increased very sharply when evidence emerged that the president himself was receiving illicit payments from a Chinese state-owned enterprise and taxpayers were on the hook to repay loans for, frankly, outrageously overpriced projects in his home district. We're talking about, I mean, there's one project in particular, a road in Hambantota district that sort of infamously cost $40 million per kilometer to build on a unit cost basis is the most expensive road ever constructed in the country. And that ended up sort of setting in motion this domino effect, this sort of chain of unintended consequences. So President Rajapaska back in 2015, he was narrowly defeated by a political outsider. And that political outsider, his campaign manifesto called out the ruling party for exploiting these Chinese development projects for private gain and for political gain, right? So, you know, that sort of helps shed some light, I think, on why you see this short-term economic boost through these projects, because anytime you do a big ticket infrastructure project, it's almost by definition going to lead to more economic activity in and around the project site. But in terms of how those gains are distributed within the economy and within uh, society, that's a that's a very different question. <laughs> and in yeah. terms of the long run political consequences, you know, what we're beginning to learn is that there's this kind of hangover effect from many of these projects, you know, that can really lead to electoral changes in the electoral landscape and and governance impacts. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Brad. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Brad, how does the environmental impact play out? Yeah, it's another another great question. So, um, we we just as a kind of a companion study to the to the book, we just finished an evaluation of thirty Chinese loan financed highway construction and rehabilitation projects in just one country in Cambodia. And what we did was we tried to look at, well, where where do these highways go? And then how does forest cover change alongside the 
the road corridors, and we can we can use satellite data to track changes in forest cover. And what we found was that these 30 Chinese financed highway construction projects triggered sharp increases in deforestation alongside the the road corridors. There was a 25 to 50 percent increase in forest loss. Um, and that uh, was not happening just anywhere. It was happening in these kind of pristine rainforest areas that other road financiers had deliberately avoided. So many of these roads were actually leading directly to land concessions that had been granted to Chinese investors to extract timber. Right. So some of these loan finance projects are sort of a example of the, the Chinese state almost serving as like a handmaiden to its companies. Right. Mm. Where the roads are facilitating the extraction and the export of a of a primary commodity and thus facilitating, you know, trade and, and commerce. And, you know, the the other players on the ground in that particular country, you know, they wouldn't dare go and build a road in the middle of a protected area, you know, in a national park. But China sort of has demonstrated through its actions that it's not deterred <laughs> uh, by, you know, a, a national park. That is certainly a very real danger associated with these projects. So you talked about this macroeconomic impact, right, of Chinese loans, right? Chinese debt as having this short-term impact that peters out. And I'm wondering if that's similar, right, for U.S. lending. Yeah. So U.S. lending has dropped to exceptionally low levels. And part of this is because in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were a whole host of countries that got in over their heads in, in debt. And the U.S. worked with a coalition of like-minded countries and multilateral institutions to write down those debts and sort of restore fiscal discipline and sort of give these countries healthy balance sheets. And so once they had healthy balance sheets, you know, the U.S. kind of pivoted towards grants um, and many of its allies pivoted towards grants so that they wouldn't repeat the same problem, <laughs> you know, that right. had built, built up as a result of kind of excessive sovereign debt accumulation. So the irony is, of course, that when the U.S. and its partners sort of wrote off all these debts, that kind of became an incentive or it, it cleared the pathway for a lot of these countries to go on a Chinese borrowing spree because, you know, when they were carrying lots of debt on their on their books, they just couldn't absorb much new lending. And so, you know, the U.S. and World Bank and others were kind of reluctant to engage in fresh lending. And that was coming right at the same time that China had all these surplus dollars and they were ready to lend, right? And so that really led to a rapid buildup in debt around all around the, the developing world. So, Brad, I thought one of the most important contributions of the book is debunking some popular myths. And perhaps we can start with, with what you guys call the hero or the villain myth. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the conventional wisdom about China is that it's kind of a rogue donor, that it's propping up corrupt regimes and, you know, it is sort of making it more difficult for the U.S. to advance its interests and, 
you know, what we find is that actually there's great similarities in the way that China and the U.S. allocate aid. So both countries favor poor recipients. If you were a country in need, you have a higher level of need, both the U.S. and China are more likely to, you know, give you aid. And when it comes to using aid for foreign policy purposes, Washington and Beijing appear to be following the same playbook. You know, I I mentioned earlier that countries are richly rewarded when they align their, their votes with China in the UN General Assembly, the same thing is true of USAID. You know, we richly reward countries for voting with us in the General Assembly, in the Security Council, and elsewhere. So, you know, in that respect, the book does kind of debunk the idea that China is unique and sort of upending the existing set of practices that govern the provision of aid. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So Brad, here's my favorite. It's, it's the grand strategy myth. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the the rap on on the Belt and Road Initiative is that it is this grand strategy to kind of create a sinocentric world order to kind of win influence and build build alliances and I think, you know, what we found was that the indicators that best predict the overall scale of China's overseas development finance program, as well as where the money goes, you know, it is, uh, there's basically three main drivers of this program. And they're all about domestic economic challenges that China has been facing for nearly two decades. So we already touched on one of them, which is the dollar surplus. They got to, if they keep all those dollars on shore, it creates macroeconomic chaos, right? So they they need to offshore those dollars. And that's why these loans are not denominated for the most part in RMB or some other currency, they're denominated in dollars, right? So they're solving that problem with this, this foreign lending program. Number two is that they have, for the better part of two decades, had a major domestic industrial overcapacity problem. They produce too much steel and cement and glass and aluminum. 
And the problem is they've got these bloated, inefficient Chinese state-owned enterprises that employ tens of thousands of people and they don't have enough domestic customers to buy all of this these oversupplied industrial inputs. And so they've come up with a kind of clever strategy, which is they contractually obligate their borrowers to buy all those domestically oversupplied inputs. So if you're gonna build a you know thousand kilometer railway in Kenya, you're gonna borrow from us in dollars, but you're also going to be obligated to buy all the steel for that railway from these companies in China, you know, that um, don't have enough customers. Domestic um, jobs program. That's right, that's right. And then finally, you know, they have a long-term need for uh, natural resources that they lack in sufficient quantities at home to continue to fuel domestic economic growth. And so they've come up with this really clever way of allowing their borrowers to repay their loans and collateralize their loans with um, natural resource revenues from natural resource exports. So you sell us oil, and then we're going to take the the proceeds from the sale of oil, and we're going to deposit those funds in two accounts. One account to service the debt, and then another account that basically the money just sits in escrow as our source of collateral. It's a, it's a liquid source of collateral that we can seize in a moment's notice, right? And this is another area where the book really busts a longstanding myth, and that is the myth of debt trap diplomacy, right? So around Washington, it is now kind of received wisdom that Chinese state-owned lenders they ask their borrowers for physical assets as sources of collateral, like seaports and airports and electricity grids. And you know we have access to some of the unredacted loan contracts between Chinese state-owned lenders and their overseas borrowers. And what we find is that the Chinese are way savvier than that. They don't collateralize on physical illiquid assets. They collateralize on cash. Right. They have their borrowers maintain a minimum cash balance in an offshore bank account that they, the lender, control. And with a keystroke on their computer, they can debit that account. Right. They could seize those liquid assets without ever going before a judge. Right. To try to liquidate an asset or, you know, recover an overdue debt. So they've sort of expunged uncertainty from the system, right? They're sort of trying to de-risk this lending system that they've created by asking for a, a source of easy to access collateral, you know, that other lenders have traditionally not asked for. Yeah, so it sounds like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like to me, you hear China political experts say that the fundamental goal of the government in the, is the maintenance of the Communist Party which in their mind requires, you know, continued economic growth to ensure social stability and political stability. And so everything at the end of the day is about making sure the domestic economy continues to grow. And it really sounds to me like what you're describing here in terms of China's development finance is all part of that focus. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, in some respects, the mere fact that this program exists is sort of a sign of weakness rather than strength, right? This program is meant to address long-term structural economic weaknesses 
in China, right? If they, you know, they live in fear of laying off tens of thousands of steel workers and cement workers because they know that that would be a threat to regime stability. So rather than, you know, reforming inefficient state-owned enterprises or privatizing them, they're basically subsidizing them by just, you know, creating a, a larger customer base overseas, you know, a lot of customers who they can contractually obligate it to buy their oversupplied stuff. Yeah. So, Brad, I want to take you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Given what China is doing here, what's the proper policy response from Washington? How do you think about that? Well, I think we're at a really important inflection point because, you know, for the first five or six years of this Belt and Road Initiative, China was on the front foot. They were playing offense. Everybody wanted to jump on the Belt and Road bandwagon and be part of this, this program that Beijing was bankrolling. And now what we're starting to see is a sort of dynamic that I refer to as Belt and Road buyer's remorse, where you have dozens of countries that have overcommitted themselves from a debt management standpoint. They've got too much Chinese debt on their books. And we're also seeing that some of these very large infrastructure projects are encountering major implementation problems. So we find that 35% of the infrastructure, the Belt and Road infrastructure project portfolio is now plagued by a major implementation problem, like a corruption scandal or an environmental disaster or a labor protest. And so what I think that means for the U.S. and for its for its allies is that there's an opportunity here mm. to really force the Chinese to be more transparent about what they're doing and sort of be on the side of the of partner countries who are trying to get out of this mess, right? So whereas uh, we might be, the you know, the U.S. government might be inclined to just use this as an opportunity to bash China. You know, there are many countries around the world right now where this is their hour of need. They need someone to step in and help them get out of the mess that they found themselves in. And, you know, the U.S. government and its allies will either be there and be willing to step into the breach or not. And I think what we've detected over the last 18 to 24 months is that windows of opportunity are opening. You see this in electoral cycles where politicians are coming to power on platforms where they are identifying all the problems with this Chinese debt financed infrastructure, these Chinese debt financed infrastructure projects. And, you know, they are sort of identifying the problems and using that to come to power. And once they come to power, they still have to show their citizens that they can deliver. Right. And so at that point, once they come to power, then they're sort of casting about for new suitors, right? Other people that can come and help them. And I think that means that the U.S. government needs to have a rapid response capability to really keep the, its ear to the ground and address the unmet needs of these countries and their their leaders. And I think there's a lot of kind of bureaucratic inertia that is built into the U.S. aid system. And I think it's sort of high time that that system be reformed to address, to be more demand responsive, 
right, to address these very real needs of our overseas partners so that they don't end up right back in Beijing's orbit, right? There's no lack of opportunity, you know, for the U.S. to compete, but we have to compete on the merits, right? We have to have a compelling value proposition so that, you know, it can't just be rhetorical. We can't just be beating up China rhetorically. We have to have a compelling offer, you know, that perhaps will be based more on, you know, having infrastructure projects with stronger social and governance and environmental safeguards with more transparency around the contractual terms that really get provides a viable alternative. That's a great policy recommendation, Brad. The book is Banking on Beijing, The Aims and Impacts of China's Overseas Development Program. The author is Brad Parks. Brack, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a very insightful discussion. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That was Brad Parks. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.